All right, the next part of our talk tonight, uh, I'll be continuing with Paul, and then I'm going to merge this eventually into Yaakov and Kifa's uh, death. The Antichrist, the strong delusion, and Paul. This is what really excites me. What I'm about to tell you, you, you may have never heard before. And I think, hopefully you all agree, that this what I'm about to say will make total sense. Like what I'm about to say, you can't unhear. What is a strong delusion? Where did it originate? Well, Paul gives us hints, and I'm going to point it out. So many of the Paul fanboys out there noticed that I made no mention of 2 Thessalonians earlier, particularly when detailing Paul's various passages, which anticipate the glorious appearing. If this is at all like those other thousand instances in my writing career, then they are currently going about social media, writing status updates about me, snubbing the passage, and also how I've been stumped and incapable of answering it, and that preterism or whatever label I'm, I've been assigned to this week, last week I was, it was, last week I was agnostic, if I recall, has been defeated once and for all. Oh, believe me, Paul's Antichrist warning was on my mind. I simply wasn't ready to talk about it yet. There was still too much else to cover, and I'm talking about the total paper that I'm writing. This comes much later in the paper. If you will recall uh, the presentation I gave like a year ago, or actually over a year ago by this point, uh, there were the seven kings of Rome needing tended to, as well as the seven Caesars. And then the locked off head of the Leviathan entered the conversation. The thing that especially needed conveyed is the paradigm shift between Julius Octavian and the other three of the first five heads to the, Flav the Flavians, who were the last two, all due to the suicide of Nero which has all the markings of a stage performance. Uh, my position is that it was, it was faked. It was a hoax. He didn't really uh, die at that time. And I will actually be talking about that next time. I, I think two weeks from now, when we get back together on this, I'll be talking about how uh, there are multiple texts that I found that talk about how Nero actually returned 500 years later. Those same sentiments were like, likewise conveyed by the left to right hand swap between the first and second beasts. The idea was to convey all of these various uh, uh, pinions and cogwheels, maybe even include some of the other working gears that make up the industrious beast machine while we're at it, before finally commenting upon uh, the Paul passage, which we're about to. And so you see, I wasn't delaying anything. I was simply biding my time, waiting upon the right moment to strike. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, probably one of the most quoted passages in the whole Bible, uh, usually from people who saying that, you know, when the Illuminati play their Antichrist card in the future and the third built temple. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Adonai Yahushua HaMashiach and by our gathering together into him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by ruach, nor by word, nor by sephir as from us, as that the day of Yahuwah is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there comes a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called Elohim, or that is worshipped so that he as Elohim sits in the temple of Elohim, showing himself that he is Elohim. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? 
That's the thing about Paul's letters. He's always commenting upon, upon private conversations. You don't get the, the really the fine details in his letters. He's leaving out stuff. It's just a one-sided, you know, uh, kind of relaying of facts. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the lawless one be revealed, whom Yahuwah shall consume with the ruach of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be, be saved. And for this cause, Elohim shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-12. The Antichrist was Nero, but then again, he was Vespasian. And while we're at it, he was Titus as well. I just dropped three names. Do you see my dilemma? I put these things off for a reason. First and foremost, the biggest tip-off that the lawless one was expected to arrive in their generation comes to us in verse 5. Paul had already given them the gory details in person. This was simply a recap of a conversation which we are not a part of, and an abstract one at that. He wasn't willing to relay all those facts again in an open letter which might be apprehended by the authorities. Paul was simply reminding them again to be patient and wait for the events which he had, which he and probably numerous others had spoken of in private circles to unfold. I what I'm saying is, is I think his announcement here was something that probably all the apostles, you know, Yaakov and Kepha and uh, and Andrew or Andrei uh, and, you know, just uh, Taom and so on, all going forth, they're all kind of telling people, look, these events are going to unfold. It's going to happen. Uh, Yahushua's coming for us, but there's a few things that need to happen, and we're going to watch these events unfold. I don't think Paul was the only guy going around saying this. What really bursts my buttons is the sheer level of entitlement today. The first century church was experiencing unprecedented persecution. If the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of Yahushua HaMashiach informed them of anything, it's that they could wait with faithful endurance until he fulfilled the remainder of his campaign promises. It was all supposed to go down with their generation. Meanwhile, the modern reader has the audacity to claim that they were all being told of what they could expect to befall us rather than them 2,000 years later, the fig tree generation. Now, uh, you can see here a little clipping from Wikipedia. Uh, scholars who support its authenticity, the, uh, this letter, 2 Thessalonians, view it as having been written around 51 to 52 AD, shortly after the first epistle. Those who see it as a lighter composition assign a date of around 80 to 115 AD. Why is that? Why, does, why do they assign it to 80 to 115? Because it describes the events of 70 AD is why. They, they don't want to, pastors don't want to tell you that. Paul's, and by the way, I believe it, it was 51, 52 AD. Just, just saying, though, that it, it describes those events so well. Paul's brief adventure in Thessalonica can be read about in Acts 17. He enters a synagogue and begins teaching, as was his custom, on Sabbath. 
Some of the Yahudim believe on Mashiach and many of the women. While staying there as a guest of, uh, of Yason, which would be modern Jason, the unbelieving Yahudim surround his house by night, hoping to drag them out of the house. The short of it is that the brethren send Paul and Silas away to Berea, wherein he immediately entered a synagogue on Sabbath, and from there to Athens, where more synagogues await on Sabbath. It was at Corinth, presumably in 51 to 52 AD, that Paul penned a quick succession of two letters to the believers of Mashiach. Why do the secular scholars claim it was written as a pseudo-piece anywhere from the late 1st century to the early 2nd century, then? There are textual reasons and some interesting mix-and-match theories for sure, none of which concern me at the moment. In their less guarded moments, an honest scholar will tell you they are slapping it, uh, slapping at the wall, seeking a light switch in the darkest to the dating, because they, they don't know. I've, I've, I've seen, like, historians at, like, universities like Yale and Harvard and others, they, they all say that. They're just, it's all, they just, it's all a guessing game, and they're paid to inform us of our reality. But then there is the Antichrist dilemma. The main reason for why they push the composition of this letter, 2 Thessalonians to a later decade, as I've already told you, is for the same reason that Yokinon's revelation doesn't show up until the 90s. Because only the pastors are the ones going about detaching the sheep from the reality of Yahushua's generation and convincing them that the events foretold haven't happened yet, when in fact they did happen. Meanwhile, the secular scholars are reading these books too and going, oh crap, Paul and Yochanan are talking about Nero and the, Flav and the Flavians, and we can't have that. People might begin to think that the Bible is true. Best to move its composition to a later decade so as to make their predictions more of an afterthought. The interesting part about the 52 AD date is that Nero became emperor and pharaoh of Egypt in 54 AD, two years later at the age of 16. The non-preterists loved to write articles about how Paul was warning about him, Nero, in his letter, hoping to convince the preterists that he was indeed the Antichrist they're looking for, only to turn around and take a wrecking ball to the entire thing, claiming he couldn't possibly be the culprit because he is never once recorded as having entered the temple in Yerushalayim. So there's no record of Nero going into the temple and saying, I'm God. He never does that. And that's what Paul says that that's the requirements of the Antichrist. Well, this much is true. It isn't him. It, it, Nero's not the guy he's talking about here. Not that he wasn't a man of lawlessness. He most certainly was. He was an Antichrist too. He was most definitely the, the spirit of Antichrist. The problem, as I see it, is that the eschatology people aren't thinking fourth-dimensionally enough. Nero may have been a head on the beast, but the beast has more than one head. Don't make, don't make me go over all that again. It, it will be on the test, though, just so you know. Now, here we see a couple of coins. This is the Titus coin. I will point out that that is a, uh, a first-century depiction of a, of a Jewish man on there. We get a lot of debates where... You know, were the, were the Jews black? That's clearly not a black man on there. What I'm saying is that, you know, it's, it's very selective. All, the, the evidence I see shows that they look like Middle Eastern people of the Mediterranean region. I will ask the real man of lawlessness to please stand up. And that person can be found on the front side of coinage. Titus was the seventh and final head of the beast. The reverse of the coin, by the way, shows a Yehudan man kneeling before the Roman captor because, as you know, Titus was the grand finale of the Revelation Beast project. 
before I pick apart Second uh, Thessalonians for you, it would be good to read more of his backstory. That's something else that I purposely left out when talking about the Flavians. I knew there was more to the tale, but made the decision to withhold it for this present hour. Before even getting into that, though, there is one other review matter which I think you will appreciate. So what is this from? This comes from, oh, First Maccabees. For the king had sent sephirim, or letters, or books, by messengers into Jerusalem and the cities of Yehud, of, uh, Judea, of Judea, that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid ascending smoke offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and feast days and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and Asherah poles and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised. Why is all this so familiar? And make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profane, uh, profane uh, profanation. To the end, they might forget, wait for it, to the end, to the end result, that they might forget the Torah and change all the ordinances. Who did this? The, the man of lawlessness in First Maccabees. Dun, dun, dun. Assuming you're reading my doctoral thesis in order and your memory is at least as good as mine or better than you will, uh, better than, uh, or better than, you will recall that we've been over this passage already in this, in this section dealing with Christianity and Satanism's mutual love for pork belly with apples and uh, watercress. So uh, I've given I've gone over this with this group before and elsewhere in the same paper you will see where I talk about the the vision of the sh the animals coming down on the sheet that it was not Yahuwah is not telling Kepha or Peter that he can have uh, you know pork ribs you know uh, a, a McRib sandwich you know a, a Cobb salad. He's not telling him that. The vision was not about animals. Kepha identifies three times, three separate occasions, what the vision is about. He even goes to Yaakov in Jerusalem and tells him, for clarity purposes, that it's not about eating unclean animals. It's about associating with people. And then the pastor turns it around and says, no, 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 no. Kepha was wrong. We're not going to listen to how he interprets his own vision. But we're going to say you can go to McDonald's and have a McRib. Of course, if these people are feeling especially feisty, a cherry gravy on top of their pork belly with apple and watercress. Reading that in advance rather than skipping around is finally about to pay off. Uh, the, 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 the vision of the animals on sheep. Though the biggest payoff of all is getting you to shun the carnitas in favor of a clean, less abominable Mexican food option like beef tacos. The king in First uh, Maccabees was Antiochus IV, and as you can tell, the order of the day was the abomination of desolation spoken about in Daniel 12.11 and Yehusha HaMashiach in Matthew 24.15, as well as hordes of eschatology, uh, eschatology students have talked about this event. The ultimate purpose was to do away with the Torah of Yahuwah. It's the little details. And so we see here in Daniel 12, 11, and from the time of the removal, the daily lifting up and the giving of the abomination of desolation, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. 
Then we see Yahushua's talking about a fa famous chapter of Matthew 24. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Yahuwah flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Meaning that when the Antichrist, when he goes into the temple and he creates the abomination of desolation, when that happens, like the destruction of Yerushalayim is coming so quickly that just get out now. Just get out of there. Don't stick around. It's not going to end well. Without getting back into the brunt of my Olivet Discourse commentary again, which is found elsewhere in this paper, I once enjoyed Johnny Cash as much as the next man, but if we're dealing with the reality of his story, Matthew 24 came knocking on the door a long time ago. It's a good song, though. There is the ye again. Yahusha is indirectly telling us that, that they would see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. That person revealed himself in Titus, not Nero, but Titus utilizing Antiochus IV as his role model. He actually really looked up to Antiochus IV. Yosef ben Matithyahu, that would be Josephus, even lays the case out for us. He, he just lays it out there. He rolls the red carpet out, and it's for the paparazzi, and we refuse to listen to what he said. He tells us precisely how and when it happens, down to the very gate where he entered, though very seem to care to listen. And this is what Josephus says in Wars of the Jews, of Wars of the Yahudim, 661. And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings round about it, the holy house would be the temple that he burns. So leading, he's saying leading right up to the burning, right? Because Yahushua said, when he declares himself God, get out while you can, right? So Josephus is telling you right up to this moment, they brought their ensigns to the temple. The temple hasn't been burnt yet. And set them over against its eastern gate. And there did they offer sacrifices to them, which just like we read in, in First Maccabees. The abomination of desolation. They throw a, you know, have a little loo out there, throw a pig on, on the barbecue. And there did they make Titus imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. And now all the soldiers had such vast quantities of the spoils, which they had gotten by plunder. They're plundering the city. So get out. Don't go back for anything because that's about to be plundered. Just get out. And, of course, if you don't go back for your coat, there's less to be plundered, right? Less to take from you. That in Syria, a pound weight of gold was sold for half its former value. All right. Originally, Imperator was a title conferred upon a victorious general, which is what Titus was. But then after the reign of Tiberius, the imperator title was only granted to the emperor himself. It's why I stated earlier that Vespasian and Titus were two simultaneous emperors reigning in partnership together, father and son team, or a, or a regular father and son duo. Try not to overlook the profound fact that he was declared imperator at the temple of all places. I mean, at the temple of all places, guys. I mean, how obvious does this have to be? He is declared 
emperor at the temple. I mean, had the title been conferred onto me, Imperator, I might choose my favorite pasta joint for the crowning, maybe my local corner pub, the sort of place where everybody knows my name. But the temple in Jerusalem, of all places, give me a break. Now, the Zionist based eschatology fanboys love to leave that scene from the movie on the cutting room floor. But then there is also the matter of the ensigns. The Roman legions collected a diverse assortment of ensigns for their marching drills, and guess what they were used for? Take a moment to think about it. While you do, it will also be up to you to differentiate between the messianic ensign and the Roman ones. I don't always make it easy, do I? Well, you'll have to try your best. Here's a hint. I'm only seeing one Tav in the batch, and that's just the thing about ensigns. Their purpose was one of devotion and loyalty, but also of worship. That would explain why the Romans offered sacrifices to them. The fact that they made Titus Imperator, or Emperor of Rome, as part of their ceremony is an even clearer indication of the ensign's purpose. Why do I get the feeling that the sacrifice was, say, oh, I don't know, a pig or some other unclean animal. It may have been a, uh, even been a hula skirt luau for all I know. Everyone, and not just the emperor, was getting laid among the, <laughs> among the pit. All right, so going back to Second Thessalonians two seven, this is what we read. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. So somebody needs to be taken out of the way for this particular Antichrist to show up at the temple, all right? So cross-referencing that with Roman, uh, not Romans, Revelation 13.4. Uh, it's getting late, guys. Revelation 13.14. And deceives them that dwells on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which have the wound by a sword and that did live. So the one that was taken out of the way, right, he did live. Supposing a preterist inserts imperial uh, Caligula into 2 Thessalonians 2.7, claiming he was the one taken out of the way to make way for Nero, then he would be, um, then he would be counting the heads on the seven-fingered beast puppet all wrong. Nero was bad news, but he wasn't the end of the story by any means. The confusion happens because there is such an emphasis on the 52 AD copyright date that Paul's publisher supposedly stamped onto the church letter. No, Nero was the one, Nero was the one taken out of the way to make way for the Flavians. And you have to refer elsewhere in this paper where I take you all through that. That basically Nero's suicide was kind of like, it was like the end. Like that was a big political scandal like you know is rome done for it, it certainly uh hiked up the uh the confidence of the yahudim who sparked their war because it's like we can take out rome now like look how it look how uh, weak rome is their own emperor is dead rome burns you know to the ground we can take these guys out that factoid of his story becomes most evident when lining up the passage with Revelation 13, 15, the second beast sets up an image or ensigns, thereby directing traffic into the current of emperor worship. 
Even though the people of Yehuda held their breath, hoping that the head of the beast was destroyed after Nero's reign of terror came to an end, Rome was back with a vengeance and stronger than ever. Titus made sure of that fact. So now let's once again cross-reference the two, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called Elohim or that is worshipped, so that he, as Elohim, sits in the temple of Elohim, showing himself that he is Elohim. And then we read in Revelation 13, 15, one verse over, and he, uh, from what we've just read. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. The image of the beast should both that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. All right, cross-referencing the two uh, with wars of the Yahudim, 661, once again reaps its rewards. Paul warned the believers of Thessalonica of the lawless one who would sit in the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be Elohim. The Caesar you seek is Titus. He was the very individual who gave life to the image of the beast in Revelation 13, 15. We further read that anyone who didn't worship the image of the beast would be killed. Well, why do you suppose Titus? Well, what? Uh, what do you suppose? Okay. Well, why do you suppose Titus did what he did in the temple? He was given giving the Yahudim one last chance, an ultimatum: worship him or die. He basically shows up and look and goes, "Look, uh, here's all my insigns. They all declare who I am. They just declared me as emperor. I'm in charge." I'm Elohim. I'll cut you guys a break. All right? You guys just just, just honor me. Just acknowledge that I'm Elohim, and it'll be good for you. It'll, it'll go good. All right? But if you don't, I'm burning this place down to the ground. Paul's warning and the arrival of Titus is a locked case, if you ask my opinion on the matter. The defense rests. I hand it off to the jury. But before I do, there is one other theological bullet point capable of burning bridges in which nearly all students of eschatology get wrong. Seems like just about everyone falls flat on their face with this one, defiantly so, and enjoys doing it over and over and over again. It has to do with the strong delusion, and here is what we read about it. And for this cause, for what cause? for Titus going, declaring himself to be Elohim and then burning down the temple. And for this cause, Elohim shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a truth, no, and lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the Torah, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, which is disobeying the Torah. I present for you what appears to be the greatest reason as to why our Christian controllers are so hellbent on detaching us from the fulfillment of prophecy in 70 AD. Connecting those dots will in turn begin to connect others, mainly this one, that uh, the, this cause being spoken of directs us to the abomination of desolation as well as the burning of the temple. We know the purpose for doing so in uh Maccabees, first Maccabees was, and I quote, to the end that they might forget the Torah and change all the ordinances, which is what has happened in Christianity. Well, that's precise what that's precisely what happened on the second go-around. It was a resounding success. 
The Christians of the late great planet Earth advertised the destruction of the temple as a joy to the world moment, in so much that it is proof of the Torah being done away with. Wrong. They couldn't be any further from the truth on this one. Uh, Psalms 119.142 says, Your righteousness is righteousness forever. Forever. And your Torah is truth. The Torah cannot become an untruth. That's not the way it works. Turns out the strong delusion spoken about is a direct cross-reference to Psalm 119. Paul is literally quoting from this verse. When I saw that, I was like, boom, there it is right there. He's quoting from this verse, Psalm 118. In saying that many will believe not in the truth, he is speaking of those who reject an obedience to the commands found in the Torah. They have believed the lie that the Torah is done away with. The destruction of the temple assures them of that apparent fact. When warning about those who prefer unrighteousness, he is speaking of those who reject the very character of Yahuwah Elohim, which is forever and unchanging. Actually, he says they will take pleasure in doing so. I take that to me. They have been given a license to sin. Elohim isn't bipolar, guys. He doesn't keep making up his mind over and over again. There is your strong delusion. Now, I will say really quickly that I, I just that there, there was some, you know, you know, uh, little editing errors in here. Hopefully, Rebecca, you're paying attention to this. Uh, this isn't the edited copy, but uh, I, I published this section I just went through, I think last week, just this week, yesterday, in fact, uh, one of my, my, one of my favorite uh, guys out there, you guys all know the name Jay Dyer. I'm not, I'm not, you know, slamming the guy, but he actually had a Torah uh, guy come onto his channel uh, on Jay Dyer's channel and he debated him. And, you know, the Torah guy, he's, you know, he's saying why the Torah is, is the standard of righteousness and truth and Yahushua HaMashiach and stuff. He, he's given great points. The first point that Jay Dyer put out there as to why we don't have to follow the Torah anymore, he brought this up. He said the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and that was a fulfillment of the Torah. It was done and over with. And so what he's actually, what, when Christians say this, when they're telling you this, I've had people tell me this probably Dozens, if not hundreds of times by now. Noel, you're living in a deception that you think you, you know, the Torah is the standard of righteousness because the temple was destroyed and that's proof we don't have to do it anymore. What they're actually saying is the Antichrist destroyed the temple. And so thank you to him. You know, we're free from it now. Whoopee, right? All right, so there's your strong delusion right there. And it's connected to the 78 event, and you see why they're trying to detach us from it. <laughs>